Hello and welcome to episode 45 of Whiskey Talk from the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. I'm Richard Gosling, editor of the Society's members magazine, Unfiltered. Whiskey writer Dave Broom seems to have an endless curiosity and fascination for whiskey, and in his latest book, he has set out to explore the story of Scotland's whiskey history, the spirit's importance within the country's culture, and the diverse landscapes that it comes from. In A Sense of Place, he takes the reader on a journey across the country with pictures by photographer Christina Kernahan. My colleague at the SMWS, Madge Schmoll, sat down with Dave recently at the vaults in Leith to find out more about the book. She began by asking where the initial idea came from. The book is that companion volume to a title I wrote about four years ago, five years ago, uh, which was called uh, The Way of Whiskey, which was a journey around Japanese whiskey. And it was looking at the parallels between the mindset of Japanese traditional craftsmen and the mindset of their, their whiskey makers. Uh, then I wanted to apply kind of the same principles to Scotland, but with a slightly different angle. Mm. So uh, this is a look at landscape, community, uh, a sense of belonging, uh, whiskey history, maybe kind of forgotten whiskey history, uh, and all sustainability. Uh, so yeah, I'm, it's gone beyond it. You know, a lot of people talk about terroir these mm-hmm. days, and I think that's too narrow a scope, really, and they're trying to shoehorn kind of wine ideas into whiskey. And I think place actually then allows you to talk about culture and allows you to talk about people and how whiskey has played a role within those specific spots within the country. Mm. Uh, so that's kind of what, it, what, what it's about. It starts in Orkney, uh, it starts in the Neolithic, uh, at the Nessa Broadgar was kind of the first conscious uh, farming and planting of barley. Uh, conceivably brewing, obviously not distilling, but conceivably brewing, but they haven't quite worked that one out. And then and then we work our way from north to south, so it starts in Orkney, ends in Isla. Uh, and looking at not that many distilleries, we just look at distilleries which uh, help to move the story on and are kind of worthy of consideration within, mm-hmm. within that framework. Uh, so we go from the north, uh, from Orkney down to Brora, to Dornach, uh, to see the Thompson brothers at Dornach, then down to Speyside. And specifically the grants, because I thought that if you're trying to deal with this incredibly complex region, what, what, what's the best lens to look at it? And if you actually look at the history of the family, the history of the family, mm-hmm. where they started, Dufton and the Cabrick actually, and where they are now, tells the story of Speyside quite effectively. And then out to the west, to Nagnean, Ardnamurchan, Torreveig, Razi, Harris, back to the mainland to have a chat with uh, Jim Beveridge and Emma Walker to look at blending and then finishing off an Isla. Uh, inspiration? Uh, it's funny, I, I, was, I was looking back at, uh, back at my notes and I think the first, uh, first thoughts about a book like this, not specifically this book, but looking at so, so Scotland in this, and whiskey in this kind of wider lens, is probably about 10, 15 years old. You know, it, it's kind of something that's just been an itch that I've had to scratch for a long time. Uh, we did a film a couple of years back called The Amber Light uh, and that touched on some of the, the areas, it was looking more culture. Uh, and I just wanted to kind of widen it out a bit. So thankfully the, the publisher uh, said, well yeah, you know, we, we got it in terms of um, way of whiskey. So yeah, let's give it a shot with Scotland. So, 
that's it. Sorry, a very long answer. No, but I am going to go back to um, the T word, terroir. Oh yeah. Uh, please, please. Is that <laughs> is that intentional? Um, are you wanting to tackle the ongoing debate uh, about the role of terroir in the world of Scotch? Uh, yeah, I mean, I do, yes, I am, and I, I want to try and move away from from, from that phrase, uh, to, to be honest, because I think there's a much wider there's a much wider discussion because terroir for me works within wine uh, but I find it harder to uh, I think you're trying to force the issue when you're talking about it with, with whiskey with, with a crop that's only grown once a year uh, as against vines which might be sitting in the soil for, for 100, 200 years uh, so I, I think there's a very clear demarcation between, between a, a whiskey terroir on wine terms and, and, and wine itself and I'm much more interested because I think also terroir takes human beings out of the equation. Uh, terroir is, is looking purely, I would say, kind of physical features, you know, mm. and that, that, the geography, the geology, the geography, the climate, etc., etc. But but that the human influence has kind of been written out of terroir. Whereas if you look at it from place or this idea of bioregionalism, which is actually a, a, a concept started by this amazing la lad of Pertz, uh, Patrick Geddes, mm. uh, Scotsman Patrick Geddes, which includes people within the creation, within their reaction to a landscape, their reaction to conditions, uh, is actually part and parcel of this thing called place. And it goes beyond terroir. So it's kind of widening the, widening the discussion. So it's an interesting one to talk about, I, I, I think, terroir. And I'm not, you know, I'm not ranting uh, against it, but I, I do think it, it's once you begin to, once you're going to take a step back, mm. Uh, I think you then, then it's a lot easier to then start looking at the links in whiskey terms, for example, between farmers and distillers, mm-hmm. Far- links which have been fundamentally shattered over a hundred years, or foresters and sawmills and cooperages, etc. And you all of a sudden see, if you, if you take this more kind of bi-regional uh, view of, of, of things, all of a sudden, issues such as that, and issues such as sustainability, and about how whiskey has been part of this community, and has the reaction of the people in their making of the whiskey uh, has actually influenced flavour. Mm. Suddenly, suddenly, I think you're dealing with a much richer, uh, yeah, a richer way of, of, of looking at the subject without making it. Is that sounds dreadfully pompous and dreary, you know, uh, it's a lot of fun along the way, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, yeah I, I just think that it's great that people are now beginning to focus on it, and I think it's really important because of the issues of sustainability, but uh, I think terroir is too simplistic, there you go, that's it in a nutshell. Well, you uh, you kind of jumped onto my next point, which oh. was going to be about uh, sustainability, yeah. um, because there are obviously there are a lot of new distilleries in Scotland and a lot of old distilleries that are coming back to life. Mm-hmm. So, what are your thoughts on the state of the Scotch whisky scene and what that means in terms of sustainability in the future? I think we're, we're at a really really exciting time within whisky, uh, not just Scotch, but within within wider whisky. Uh, I think Scotch is now part of this thing which is rather patronising when we call world whisky. Uh, you know, Scotch is just part of a global phenomenon mm. of, of amazing whiskies getting, getting made all around the world. Uh, and I think, I mean, it's a great question because, because I've been thinking, thinking about it a lot recently actually. And I think the way in which 
the discussion about whiskey has taken place over the past, I don't know, 20 odd years. It's been a very kind of binary argument. Hmm. You know, it was big versus small. It was blends versus malt. It was, you know, large companies against independent, smaller independent companies, etc., etc. And I think that, again, again, I think that that's uh, slightly simplistic. Uh, if you look at the way in which the Scotch whisky industry was set up, and it had this kind of had a hegemony uh, for over a hundred years. You know, it was it was the last one standing after Prohibition. You know, America had to rebuild its whisky industry, and then the Second World War came along. Ireland had been written out of the equation because of uh, Irish independence, the loss of the empire market, etc. Canada uh, simply provided uh, lovely brown liquid for for the mm. Americans, uh, mm. and Scotch took over the world. You know, uh, as a result of that, you know, as a result of kind of good, good fortune, and the industry as a whole then shifted because distilleries had to provide fillings for blends. So you can understand why issues about uh, yield and efficiency and the, the, the distilling model began to build. You know, mm-hmm. so that was the way you made whiskey because that was answering the demand of the market. So that makes perfect sense. But things have changed. You know, so things with, with the coming of single malt, things have fundamentally shifted because now you've got distillers, especially new distillers, who aren't tied into that mm. uh, market. And there's nothing wrong with that market. It's just there's now a huge, re- huge degree of opportunity for the new distiller who has to then look at ways in which they can cut through an incredibly busy, um, uh, you know, cluttered category. Uh, to, to make themselves heard, to distill in a new way. And I think as a result of that, look deeper into mm-hmm. where they are, what the differences could be, how they can learn from the past. So it's this kind of rebirth of Scotch in, 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 in many ways. And it can sit alongside that because there still have to be 18 million cases of Johnny Walker made a year. <laughs> you know? But at the same time, there's this huge range, a huge degree of opportunity for, for distillers yeah. on the other side who are beginning <laughs> to specialise in single malt. And I, th- I think that's really, really exciting. And part of that, you know, in terms of the sustainability argument, which you know, c- cover, covers both, both tracks, I think the smaller distillers are probably more conscious of it, and I think some of the some of the strategies that they're employing are perhaps more obvious. You know, you mm-hmm. look at and you know, and, and linking with farmers. You look at, but even you look at White Mackay linking with farmers as well. So you're beginning to see these these chains and relationships which have been fractured because of this commoditized system which had been put in place beginning to be re-established, and that's mm-hmm. hugely exciting. Uh, you know, I was speaking with Kieran Healy Ryder at uh, a White Mackay uh, recently. You know, as part of the you know their initiative of working with farmers, uh, you know, initially with, with feta care, you're only getting grain grown locally, etc. And trying to extend that across, across the estate where possible. <coughs> and he, he made a very, very important point that, you know, if we are talking about sustainability, then all cereal will have to be local. You know, if you're trying to be, you know, reducing your, your carbon footprint, yeah. you're not going to be importing grain or, or shipping up from England. You're going to try to be growing it uh, around, uh, around your own locale. And then as part of, part of that, that then leads into what are they going to be planting? And I was at Holyrood yesterday, we were doing some stuff with the guys at Holyrood. And, you know, just looking at what, you know, what Phil and Simon are doing, you know, in the book, uh, with 
land races with heritage varieties, etc. Because that has to be part of the model. Yeah. Because you say, well, how would we be different? Well, we've got all this vast array of different barley varieties, lower in yield, but we're not dealing with kind of the same efficiency model as, you know, you know, a, a distillery which yeah. is going to, going to be producing vast, vast amounts of liquid. Uh, as a result of that, you're looking at your raw ingredients, and you're looking at the raw ingredients, and you're looking again at conditions. What cereals grow in this particular place, and all of a sudden, you're back in. You know, so, so the wonderful work that's been done, say by, by, by Alistair Day at, at, at Razi, you know, looking at, at what varieties can grow on Razi, and now working with, uh, as part of the Nordic Barley Program, so realising that you know, if, you're in, if you're in the west coast of Scotland, the conditions are fundamentally different to the east, yeah. as we know. Uh, the growing season is shorter. Uh, the varieties, you know, essentially what three varieties are planted across Scotland for malting, but they're not necessarily suited to the west coast. There are varieties which are, and some of these might be Scandinavian varieties, and they might be lower yielding, and they might have more flavour, but they're suited to the conditions, which then takes you back to place. So it's almost like there's an argument there. <laughs> I've almost convinced myself. <laughs> well, so it looks like there's there's quite a few changes ahead potentially. Yeah, um, yeah, I, 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 I'm hugely excited <laughs> by, by by the the possibilities. Uh, I, I think it's 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 a glorious time to to be involved in the whiskey industry. You know, absolutely glorious. Uh, and it's, but I, I think it's important that for I think the, the Scotch industry has realised that. that uh, although the volumes are still incredibly high and still a dominant player within this 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 category, Scotch is no longer the only player, mm. uh, and consumers think that Scotch is not no longer the, the only players, and that's a motivating factor for improving quality and looking at how to differentiate yourself. And dare I say it once again, <laughs> beginning to look at conditions and what makes Scotch Scotch. Yeah. You know? And to to rewind a second. When you set out, you, you obviously mentioned that you had some inspiration already going into the creation of this book. Um, but what did you want to do differently with this publication? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I, th I think one of the things that we want to do differently, and I, I, I'm always saying we here, and that's not a royal we, I hasten to add, uh, so because uh, I was working with an amazing photographer friend called Christina Kernahan. That was one of the things we wanted to do di differently, which was uh, have amazing photography, but not perhaps... You know, there's no photos of people with noses and glasses. Uh, I really hate that. <laughs> uh, that we wanted to. There's no tasting notes. It's almost easier to say what what isn't in the book. Uh, so it's not a tour of every single distillery in Scotland. Mm -hmm. It's not a description of every single distillery in Scotland. It's not a list of tasting notes. There are no tasting notes. Whiskies are tasted uncommented on, there's no tasting notes. Uh, so it's it's not, and again I'm, I'm wary about this sounding overly grand and pompous, but it's not your normal whiskey book, you know. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of you know, my dear friend Andrew Jefford wrote an amazing, amazing book about Isla called Pete's Smoking Spirit, uh, which is just an incredible book. and which kind of step back and it's a narrative. Mm. You, know, you know, the book is a narrative uh, and it's talking to people, it's allowing the people who make the whiskey and the craftsmen who are within these areas to talk about where they are yeah. and find these kind of tangential 
uh, links to whiskey because we're all very prone to seeing whiskey within its own little world, within its own little silo. You know, this is whiskey. It you know it exists on its own and it has its own rules and it's I'm not talking SWA rules but you know it, it has its own rules and here it is and it's the rest of the world doesn't really exist doesn't impinge on whiskey this is whiskey this is what we're interested in you know we're in this lovely little round room you know, boom, doors are closed this is whiskey world but it's not you know it's a cultural product whiskey is about all of this whiskey is about Edinburgh it's about landscape it's about geology it's about it's about Scottish culture, it's about Gaelic poetry, it's about all of these different things that aren't really talked about. Mm. But as soon as you begin digging into it, you can see how whisky has influenced history or been influenced by history or how it's been talked about and sung about uh, over all these years. So, yeah, trying to capture all of that, which, you know, I, I don't know, has it been done before? I don't know, but I, I, was, quite, I was quite keen to do it. <laughs> well, one of the things that you talk about in the book is um, this idea of flavour being linked to the why, um, so the decisions behind the whiskey in the glass, yeah. sort of almost whiskey as a, a placemaker, mm-hmm. dare I say. Um, yeah. Could you talk a bit more about that? About the why, yeah. I mean, it, that, 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 kind of, that kind of picks up with uh, something I said earlier there. I, I think one of the things that, that I... I learned really early on, and, and it was probably from Michael Jackson, uh, the writer, not the uh, that the best question you can ask if you're a journalist is why. You know, and you sit and listen and you ask why, and actually if you don't know what question to ask next, you can always stall by saying why. <laughs> you know, but, but, but it's a really, really interesting way of getting people to, to speak, and actually the, the what, we're very good at speaking about the what in whiskey. You know, what the equipment is, uh, what the flavours are, uh, what the serve is going to be, you know, what the location is, etc. Mm. It's a far more interesting question and far deeper question, far more rewarding question to ask is why? You know, why are these flavours there? Uh, why is the whiskey maker approaching it in, the, in this particular way? You know, you know, why was the distillery built here? Not, not, not here is the distillery, but why? You know, why did Dufton suddenly become the capital of whiskey? You know, uh, and you know, there's good reasons for that. Mm. You know, uh, why did Barora close? You know, why did it? <laughs> no, 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 we're not going to go down that route. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so you know, for me, you know, the, the, the why is far more important. And then when it comes to tasting the whiskey, it's not what the flavours are. It's why are the flavours there? Why am I picking that up now? Why am I picking that up in the middle of the palate? Uh, you know, what has gone on? Then, then you can go, what has gone on to, to do that? And just get deeper into, deeper into this. Uh, just constantly asking yourself that question, you know. And sometimes you come up with the answers, sometimes you don't. But it's, it's a great journey, rather than just kind of sitting back and going, this is what it is. Mm. Yeah. Always ask why. Always ask why. Mm. Yeah. If in doubt. <laughs> it's funny because, you know, it's like, you know, I was thinking like when my daughter was wee, you know, it's kind of what kids ask, isn't it? Why? Why? Yeah. You know, and it's kind of, 
Well, why is that red? <laughs> you know, but, but you know, I, I think it's, it's it's an innate part of who we are as human beings. That you know, it's like our sense of smell. We forget to consciously smell things as we get older because we get a bit blasé about it. Uh, and kids do it all the time. And kids automatically ask why because they're curious little creatures, and we kind of forget about it because we get a bit I don't know jaded. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's a return to childhood. Um, in your book, we also hear from whisky makers, but also musicians, writers, and poets, um, amongst others. How important is this element of community, and what impact does it have on the story? Uh, it's vitally important. Uh, it's vitally important to move this idea of of culture uh, forward and of, of local culture, and and why that is important. Uh, so. In the I don't know in the north in the northeast you know when I'm talking uh, in Brora for, for for example you know it'd be daft not to then include Neil Neil Gunn and Neil Gunn's writing uh, not just because he was involved in whiskey and wrote about a book about whiskey but because he had this deeper understanding of much much deeper understanding about you know, about people in place and and, and the the peculiarities of that particular environment and then clearances, but also the, this kind of quasi-mystical view of, of whiskey and whiskey taste and, uh, and everything. So it was vital to have that. Uh, I did have to read myself back, I have to say. At one point in the early drafts, it was becoming more a guide through Scottish literature than it was a book about whiskey. But uh, I think it, it's very interesting to have a look at how whiskey's been talked about and written about. And it's quite hard to get records of whiskey, you know, before the 19th century. Mm. Uh, but if you look hard enough, if you, if you look in literature and if you look in poetry, then, then you'll find the references. Uh, and those references will, will be talking about how people were drinking it and what it meant to them and, and why, <laughs> the why again. Uh, so when you're dealing with whiskey kind of pre-1823, you're essentially, you know, Highland whiskey, especially, uh, you're dealing with Gaelic, you're dealing with the Gaelic culture, and you're dealing with whiskey as being central to the economy and to the culture. Uh, all of that was lost in the 19th century. All of that was lost with the 1823 Act and then with the Highland clearances. Uh, and the modern whiskey industry started, and all of that was forgotten. Uh, and that's a really important story, story to tell. And uh, one way of doing it, the, 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 one of the ways that I was thinking about the way in which people thought about whiskey, uh, you can see it through, uh, you know, the example like that I used in the book is like comparing uh, Duncan Van McIntyre, who's a Gaelic poet writing about the Highlands and Benderin, uh, Glen Orchie, Glencoe, mm. uh, the way in which he wrote about landscape and the way that he wrote about whiskey. Uh, as integral, you know, of, of someone living in a landscape, embodied within a landscape, as against the romantic poets, you know, Wordsworth and Keats and Southey and all, wandered up round about the same time, and it would have been great if they had actually marked. But the way in which they wrote about it yeah. was looking at the landscape as this thing over there, and you were removed from it. And that culture, it's a really good way, I think, to demonstrate that cultural shift that happened within Scotland and also happened within whisky itself, which was away from this kind of communitarian way of making whisky, of this Gaelic culture, uh, this kind of change of language, etc., etc., into this 
and here we are in Edinburgh, you know, this romantic view of, of Scotland and of whiskey and Walter Scott and Queen Victoria and everything which helped to build whiskey brilliantly in the 19th century, but completely overtook what had been there before. Mm. So I think, you know, by stepping back and actually saying, well, here's an example rather than just dry historical documents, here's the way in which it was talked about and here's the way it was, it was, it was talked about why did that happen? Uh, and it just shows, for me, it just shows how deeply embedded whisky has always been in Scottish culture. You know, you can't separate it from us, you know. You know it's from this country, it's from us, you know. Uh, you know, so that's kind, of, that's kind of how I did it. And, and then, I mean, just then talking to, talking to folk who live in, live in these places rather than just the distillers. You know, so talking to Sandy McDonald, this amazing farmer, boat builder, and an ardent worker. He's just, you know, and talking to him and his wife Liz about what it's like to farm in that particular place, what, what the issues are around it, uh, why he makes his boats. You know, Brody, Brody Nairn, uh, the incredible glassmaker at, at, uh, at Glassstorm in, in Tain. John Galvin, my mad Irish friend, he's one of the greatest cabinet makers <laughs> in the world. Uh, you know, and how he is, he's working very closely with a lot of whiskey firms doing, doing incredible boxes for like or cabinets and stuff for McAllen or Highland Park or, or, or wherever. But how he is reinvesting all that money into his business in Clyde Bank to help regenerate that area and give mm. kids apprentices, you know, apprenticeships. And kids whose grandfathers, maybe great grandfathers, had worked in these docks as cabinet makers. And, and as skilled craftsmen, so it, it was an, it was another way to just kind of weave this idea of a, a cultural landscape that whiskey belongs to. I was going to ask if you had any favourite um, moments or stories from <laughs> from your journey. If there were any that you know, when you think back on the trip, you're like, yeah, that one. Yeah, oh, the, 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 there was there was quite a few. I, I think the one of the. One of the most extraordinary, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a few and you, you can pair them from them. Uh, I think on our second day or something up in Orkney, uh, we went to see Nick Card, uh, who's the head of the dig at Nessa Broadgar, which is conceivably the largest Neolithic settlement in, in Northern Europe. Uh, and he was bringing out artefacts from like 5,000 years ago, and it was just like, you know, head explodes. Because here's art, you know. Yeah. Here, here is, here is. It was just suddenly, you, you know. When you write a book like this, you, I'm, you, like, like I did with the Japanese one, I'm testing out the theory, you know. And, and you do have a great deal of self doubt uh, as you move through it, thinking, is this working? You know, I mean, is uh, are these kind of theories <laughs> true, or am I just mad? Yeah. You know. And I saw that, and I thought, well, that's it. Here is a manifestation. If people are, if people take the trouble to to create art, then they belong somewhere, you know. And here is a sense of place, you know. In in their carved in stone, there's a mm. sense of place. And the fact of planting corn uh, or barley, there is a sense of place. Uh, so that was a kind of uh, shiver down the spine one. Uh, uh, <laughs> the 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 couple of nights spent spent in this deserted castle uh, with Alex Bruce and family uh, were utterly hilarious. Uh, you know, this midge, this vast Victorian pile. It was only us in there, and kind of dusty with you know big 
hang on, coos heads on the wall. And it midge infested uh, and dodgy plumbing. And it was, yeah, just utterly hilarious and just, just great, great fun. And, you know, just sitting around that table uh, in candlelight because the electricity <laughs> wasn't particularly good either. <laughs> Uh, drinking nice wine and drinking new art and and talking about whiskey and then drifting from one subject into another and just thinking, you know, this is all, this is what it's about. And it doesn't have to be in a in a castle; it could be in a pub or or wherever. Yeah. But, you know, this is kind of what what it's all about. That was great. Uh, from an emotional point of view, uh, getting to Halleg uh, on Razi, uh, Solomon McLean wrote this amazing poem about this. Uh, clear township on, on the on the east coast of, of, of Razi and to be able to get there but with uh, Aileen Green and uh, another guy called Cuddy, Cuddy Gillis uh, talking about Gaelic, talking about memory, talking about this kind of wider thing, talking about Sorley, talking about all of that and all of a sudden, all of a sudden that whole area, you know, that just kind of coalesced. So all these people helped writing the story, you know, I, I you know, you know, what I said there, being, you know, you're always kind of questioning yourself as, as, mm. as you're writing a book like this. And it was, I think it was so wonderful that you just ask the questions and just sit back and hope that people say something. And they actually helped dictate the narrative because their responses helped to drive the story on and actually pick up threads that I didn't even know existed. So they helped, they, they, they helped drive that, that, that story. So I wasn't imposing a narrative on it, it just kind of, it kind of flowed. Uh, it was amazing, you know, I, I think it's in the book, you know, when I was with John Galvin in his workshop in, in Clyde Bank, you know, and essentially I walked in and said, hi John, how are you? What are you up to? And two hours later he stopped talking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I didn't, I don't think I asked another question, you know. Uh, but everything he said was just like gold, and it was just like, yes, that links with that, that links with that, you know. So, yeah, that, that, that was incredibly rewarding. So I just hope I've got their stories over in the book. Well, I was going to ask about the photography um, and, yep. and say, was there something specific that you set out to capture with uh, with Christina? Uh, Christina, uh, yeah, we, we sat down beforehand and. She'd seen the Japanese books, so, so we talked to. So I worked with a great friend photographer, a guy called Taki, uh, in Koritake, uh, in the Japanese book. So they kind of wanted it to be similar in look, uh, and that fits perfectly with the way, the way that Christina works as well. So portraits, no lights, you know, so just natural light, uh, close-ups, lots of hands, lots of eyes, lots of expressions. Uh, no great distillery shots, you know, so details rather than, rather than shots of stills. Occasionally shots of stills, but actually bolts are as, exci as exciting. So it's something that's just visual and also allowing the photography to give a sense of a road trip, you know, so, so you know, opening a chapter with a sense of movement and a sense of why this area is different, you know, from, from the rocks at Yesnaby, uh, which can open up the, the Orkney chapter to the green of of Ardnamurchan and Morvern, you know, it's, it's almost like kind of subtle colour coding. Uh, it was great, you know, I mean, I, I, I never told her, what, you know, what to do. She knows what to do, she's an amazing photographer. But it, it was great working, it was great working with her because she got the idea, you know, and 
she contributed as well, you know, because you know we would we would finish the day and we would sit down and we'd have a chat and mm. you know she'd been listening to to talks and you know so yeah. Essentially, I just sat down and wrote up what people had told me. Don't put that in. Sorry, Dave. We just had to keep that bit in. A Sense of Place is published by Mitchell Beasley on the 29th of September 2022 and will be available at all good bookshops. There's also an audiobook and special edition with prints in the works and look out for a display of Christina Kernahan's photographs at our members' rooms in the very near future. You can find out more about Dave's book and a whole lot more in the September issue of Unfiltered for members of the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. Find out more and sign up if you're not a member already at smws.com. That's it for this episode of Whiskey Talk. Until the next time, cheers. Cheers.